Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. My rule of thumb is basically if you have less than $5,000 of credit card debt, add an extra $50 every month to the minimum monthly payment. However you have, like whatever you have to do um, to get that money. Um, like hop on task rabbit and see what service of yours, like you could teach snowboarding lessons, um, like something that would be fun and that you could get an extra 50 bucks a month to add. If you have between five and $10,000 of, of credit card debt, add an extra $50 to your minimum monthly payment. And if you have, um, over $10,000, add an extra $150. And, uh, um, if you do that, you will, um, and you have a typical mid-teens interest rate on your credit card debt, you will compress the number of years it takes to pay off that debt dramatically. Using that formula, you can, depending on the interest rate, you can get all that debt paid off in three to five years. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Manisha, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Srini, thank you so much for having me here today. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually was introduced to you by way of your publicist who told me a little bit about the, the work that you've done. Uh, and it was particularly around a subject that I think is of interest to a lot of people, myself included, and that is the idea of money. But before we get into all of that, um, I want to start by asking you, what is one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents that have influenced and shaped who you've become and what you've ended up doing with your life? Oh, gracious. Just one, right? <laughs> That's, um, I, I have a toss up between two. Um, but I'll only tell you the story about one because uh, the other one relates to money. So we can get to that. Um, but the first lesson that my parents taught me, my dad taught me early on about the power of compounding. My mom taught me that money gives women voices and choices. And early on, they both taught me how to live with in my means and emphasize that so strongly with their own behaviors. But we'll come back to that. Um, the yeah. other lesson that um, they gave me that I think is 
um, really, really shaped my life is this notion um, that with that money that I would do all of those things that they taught me how to do and that I have a choice and I could choose things or experiences. And mm-hmm. um, as I look back on my life, most likely there will be some things that will be profoundly meaningful to me, maybe a, a, a home um, in a certain place. But most likely the things I will remember most are experiences. And I have to tell you, I had a near-death experience. Um, it was 2013. I had gone to Laos and I um, was bit by an infected uh, mosquito and I came down with dengue fever. And the incubation period is such that I must have gotten bit on my my last day there. I was in the jungles and I was really careful to have the DEET on everywhere. And um, the last day I was in the Capitol and I, I was wearing a tank top and I applied stuff in the morning, but I didn't reapply because I thought, yes, I made it through the whole trip with no mosquito bites. And I got back to um, the U.S. and I was in Houston, Texas, giving a speech. Um, it was about noon and I started to feel worse and worse. And I lived in Santa Fe, New Mexico at that time. And you you fly from Houston into Albuquerque and then drive an hour from Albuquerque to Santa Fe. And I have literally no recollection of getting myself back home to Santa Fe. But I arrived with over 103 degree fever. I ended up in the emergency room and it was just like a series of a comedy of errors because um, Santa Fe, New Mexico is a very small town and no one had even stopped to consider that I had dengue. And um, anyways, long story short, um, I had a series of complications that almost resulted as um, in organ failure and death. And so I thought I was going to die and they thought I was going to die and my family thought I was going to die and everyone flew in. And I can remember one point where I was just shaking so much. I was like a cartoon character. My, my teeth were rattling and I thought, oh my God, this, this is it. This is how it's going to end. Um, and it's funny what ran through my mind was my family, my friends and a couple of places that I had been in the thought that, well, at least I had lived life. I've, I've seen things. Um, so it turns out my parents' advice was true, and I'm going to keep seeking experiences. Mm, wow. So being confronted with your own mortality, I wonder how it changed the way you lived your life after the experience. Oh, gracious. Um well, I uh, divorced my husband. <laughs> um, I uh, changed jobs. I moved to a new state without knowing anyone. Um, it just it gives you this sense of holy crap. Um, I'm 48 now, so you know I was in my early 40s when that happened. The sense of wow, like you. It could happen at any time. If something's not working, like you need to change it now. And so I made some really drastic changes in my personal life. And then unfortunately, I went back to all my old bad habits, the biggest of which is workaholism, which 
crowds out the ability to have experiences. And so I guess what I want to say is it was this wonderful wake up call, but human nature is so hard to fight against. And so, you know, on one hand, I feel like I, I took some dramatic actions that I wouldn't have taken. On the other hand, I feel like the a tsunami of your habits is are frequently pushing back against you. And I quickly fell back into those um, habits. And, um, but that awareness is, is with me. So I think it's like something that you can't unforget. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the, how I, that's the impact I would say. Wow. <clears throat> You're of Indian descent, right? Yes. My dad is Indian so- and my mom's American. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. So that raises a whole bunch of other questions that uh, I didn't even know I wanted to ask. Uh, so I guess the, the thing that I wonder, right, as a, a woman in your 40s who has, you know, been somewhat indoctrinated into Indian culture, you know, who gets divorced, I, I wonder, you know, how you how you wrestle with that uh, in your own life. Uh, because, you know, I think if somebody had asked me once on a podcast, what do you like most about being a man? And I remember my answer was from a cultural perspective. I said, you know what? If I had the choice between being my age and a single guy in Indian and my age and a single woman in Indian, I would choose single guy every time uh, because I think that Indian women deal with such a, a level of pressure that is such a double standard. And I just I wonder, as somebody who's been through this experience, what your view is on that. Oh, my gosh. Um, I could say so much about that. So I um, met my ex-husband when I was in my early 30s. He was 20 years older than me. And at that point in time, I literally felt like I was a blight on my family's reputation and um, standing because I was so old um, and still single. And all my cousins were married. They'd all had kids. And I'm the the old maid. And I felt like milk past my sell by date. And I could tell when we would go back to India, even my aunties thought the same thing. Like, you know, there were, there were no more casual introductions. They'd like given up on me. And, um, I just remember when I got, when my ex-husband and I got together, I was, um, uh, um, when we got married, I was 30, three and um 34 and um the joy from the indian side of my family was uh it was palpable and i felt like i had um like solved this huge weight on everybody's shoulders and um they were just, everyone was so happy that I was getting married. Um, in retrospect, my ex-husband is an amazing person and we now have a very cordial relationship, but um, it never even occurred to anyone like, is this the right person? What are you, you know, they were just so, I could have married a wall and they would have been thrilled. And when I um, got divorced, I got divorced because um, uh, my princess Diana has this favorite, this, this classic line when she was interviewing with Martin Bashir, um, in, uh, her 
scandalous tell-all interview the first time a, a royal had sat down um, with the media. And she said, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. And that's what had happened to me. And I, I when I divorced um, my husband, nobody could understand. Like They literally thought I had gone off my rocker. And I didn't want to tell them why, because I felt like that would bring even more shame to my family. Like, I would rather them think I was absolutely nuts um, than think that I had not been a good enough wife and therefore my husband had gone elsewhere. And it was just this. And yet at the same time, I felt that by by getting divorced and I was the first of, you know, our ex- the extended of my generation to do so, that I brought such shame on my family. And mind you, I grew up in the U.S. I did my undergrad at Wellesley. I went to Harvard Business School. Like, you know, like I have a very Western side, but oh my gosh, it was like so deep in my DNA. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. Aweber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu slash visit. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. 
As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, so you mentioned that your parents taught you about experiences to live within your means. And you know, it, it's funny because I feel like, at least from my experience as an Indian kid, you get raised with one sort of very dominant narrative, and that is that money is scarce uh, to the point where even when, you know, Indian people are well off. I see things that just shock me, like, you know, driving across town to save a couple of bucks on, you know, filling up a gas tank. You're uh, describing my dad. <laughs> well, I, 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 no, I, I kind of was shocked. You know, I remember you know, my dad would out of his way to go to Costco to get gas. And I'm like, wait a minute. I'm like, you drive a really nice car, like a $70,000 Mercedes. I'm like, why the hell does $2 make a difference? And so, you know, I, I mean, I get that you know, living within your means makes sense. And it's funny because I think that this is one of those things where uh, my sister, I think, had a very different relationship with money growing up because of the fact that she saw my parents uh, more well off than they were when I, I was. And I've struggled with it throughout my adult life. And sometimes I think it's because of that, that I've had a tendency to, you know, live, you know, above my means at times, put my, find myself in situations. So last year I made almost no money and the year before I made plenty. And I found myself in a situation where I was practice, I had to live off my credit cards. And it was kind of fitting that I was talking to you today because my dad and I were just talking about an issue I was having with one of my cards. Uh, and so I wonder one, you know, why you think it is that, um, one, this conversation about financial literacy doesn't start happening at an early age. And where do these sort of inaccurate ideas that lead to situations like mine uh, come from? Like, how does that happen? Oh, my. Lots of wonderful layers in that insightful question. First, let me address the Indian component because it's so true. And I don't know, um, culturally, I'm sure there are like a thousand and one different reasons for it, but I, I literally swear um, that scarcity mindset that so many of our parents have um, got passed down intergenerationally from their parents and their grandparents. And I don't know if it's just simply a fact of up until recently, it was, um, you know, up until the early nineties, like every time I went to India, I mean, my, overriding memory was just of excessive poverty and um, like you know you you you'd get out of the airport and you're like swamped by like oh the saddest kids with like limbs missing and they're begging and I mean it's just oh like I mean uh, there's so many there's so much sadness and um and so I think you grow up in a scarcity mindset because you are constantly faced with the fact that, but for a sheer fluke of genetic luck, you grew up in one way and not another way. And it's in your face every single day. 
Um, I don't know if the next generation of Indians to come over and be parents will be the same as what you and I experienced. Um, but I, uh, I, um, the, the message that I got, I think was unique because my dad is a CPA and an MBA and worked in finance. And at the time we were living in a, a small town in Indiana that was very unique because it happened to be the headquarters of two Fortune 500 companies. And my dad um, ultimately became the chief financial officer of one of them. But I swear there were like three people who weren't like pasty white in the entire, you know, uh, city outside of my family. And so we were always kind of outsiders. And so I think the uh, message that I got about financial, the importance of being on top of your finances had a subtext of to give you the power to get out of any situation where you might feel uncomfortable. And from my dad's standpoint, I'm guessing it came from a place of if you're facing discrimination or being kind of pushed out of the club, so to speak. And um, from my mom's side, I think it came from being a woman and things have changed so much, but you know, 40, let's say if I'm, you know, 40 years ago, like I'm eight years old and I'm just remembering what a very, very different time that was. So to get to your situation, I think what happens is um, part of it is just um, the boomerang syndrome. I see this all the time that when parents exhibit one behavior to the extreme, um, kids oftentimes flip to the other side, just um, not even consciously. Um, and it's, it's just a reaction to feeling either constrained if their parents were very frugal or if their parents were really profligate, feeling a very, very insecure and wanting to have that security in their own life. So I, I think that just happens as a parent child dynamic, oftentimes, not all the times. Um, but I think it's deeply exacerbated by the fact that we're the first generation that A, has easy access to debt because, you know, in our parent generation, you couldn't just go get a credit card or multiple credit cards. It was a pretty freaking big deal to go get a credit card. And you had to explain to the, the you know, loan officer at the bank um, what, how you're going to pay it back. You couldn't just get one through the mail or um, online. And then secondly, our I our parents were not as bombarded by media images the same way we are. Like if you went to see a Bollywood film, um, like you knew it was a film, you knew that wasn't your life. You knew you weren't going to end up like that, but it was still fun to watch. Um, nowadays, and, and same thing in the US, but nowadays there's this sense that we used to compare ourselves um, horizontally, I like to say, to the people around us who also didn't have access to debt. So our reference point was a, a group of people who couldn't live beyond their means very easily to now we compare ourselves vertically to all of the images that we see in media, uh, many of which are extreme. And the last thing I'll, I'll say on this is, you know, I, um, in different parts of my life, um, I have uh, worked with clients 
who, um, when I have been in, in um, uh, firms where I'm working on the high net worth side and we're dealing with people with a million dollars and above, and I will have someone come in and they literally look like a million bucks and they've got like the huge diamond ring or the fancy Rolex and the fancy car. And um, they're nearing retirement and they come in and they've got like nothing in savings. Like I can't manage the money for them because they don't have any money to manage. And so I, um, I have observed that most of the time the people with a outside of people with like Uber wealth, like private plane wealth, um, but most people with like what I would call one to $10 million in wealth, like wealthy, but not like, over the moon wealthy, um, yeah. you would never guess because they um, got that way by not denying themselves everything, but by having a mindset where financial flexibility was um, paramount. And I'm hesitating as I say that because, you know, what I'm thinking in my mind is, well, um, Srini had probably really like you're you're following your your joy and your bliss and that's you know um there are a lot of different reasons why people end up in this place and so taking you aside culturally yeah. speaking those are some of the issues that I see happening and the last layer is that um personal finance, it's not taught. We don't know. We don't have guidelines. So oftentimes we've already fallen into the pit. We've like face planted into the financial pit before we even realize it by buying too much car, too much home or spending too much and racking up credit card debt. And then trying to dig out of it is so difficult. We're like, oh, what the heck? It's like gaining weight. You're like, I'm already fat. I might as well just keep eating the ice cream. Yeah. So there are a lot of different uh, layers here, like you said. And, you know, as we're talking about this, um, I, so, you know, I've, I've talked to number, numerous people about this subject here on, on the podcast. I've had Garrett Gunderson, who I'm sure you probably are oh, sure, with yeah. the nature of yours. And, you know, it's, it's funny because Garrett Gunderson is like the polar opposite of Dave Ramsey. Right? Right. Like my, my, you know, when I, when I hear Dave Ramsey say some of the things he says um, to me, it's like, wow, this is deprivation at a level where you're like, okay, the, it, there's no consideration for the fact that your life is an interdependent system. It's like, oh yeah, eat rice and beans for the next five years. It's like, well, what if you get really sick because of your shitty diet that saved you a ton of money? <laughs> what does it matter that you're now out of debt because you're about to die? Like there's no consideration for the fact that those two two things, and not only that, you yourself have, you know, confronted your own mortality. So do you like, how do you wrestle with the paradox of, okay, yes, nobody wants to not be financially flexible. And ironically, I think that I've been more financially flexible without a regular job because I actually have had more cash on hand when I wasn't getting a steady paycheck than when I was. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I wonder, you know, one, you know, when you, as somebody with your background, when you think about the the Dave Ramsey version of, of, you know, dealing with money and the Garrett Gunderson version, you know, where do we go from there? So I'm, um, if Dave and Garrett are at two ends of the spectrum, um, and let's say Dave is a one and Garrett is a hundred on the uh, ag aggressiveness scale with money, I'm probably a 40, I'm going to give myself a 48, <laughs> right in line with my age. So I, I err towards Dave's notion of trying to live debt free. I do believe there's something enormously powerful 
about living debt free, which I can believe, which I believe you can do um, on a wide range of salaries. So long as you um, keep your and be happy, so long as you are very clear about squeezing the maximum amount of joy out of every dollar that you spend. And so I call this joy-based spending, and this is how I spend money. So um, periodically what I'll do is I'll... um, well, not periodically. I write down everything I spend money on and I have since 1992. And so I can tell you within about five bucks for each year what I've spent money on, which may sound ludicrous, but it gives me such, like when I got divorced, I was super clear about how much of a new, you know, how much I could afford to spend on a new condo. And if I was moving to a new city, how much I had to earn. And, um, but most people hate living like that. So what, what, I also do and counsel people to do is just write down what you spend money on for like a weekend. And at the end, don't add up the numbers, take out a yellow highlighter and highlight anything on that list that didn't bring you joy. And I call those things money leaks. And for most people, like, you know, there's the usual stuff, utility bills, a rent, mortgage. Um, and, you know, the answer on the utility bills you know, it's the same old, you really need 150 cable channels. But then you get to the interesting stuff. Like, wow, that was like a really expensive dinner out. And I didn't even actually like those people. Um, and, <laughs> you know, or I'll hear this from parents like, oh, my God, soccer lessons. The kids hate the coach. I hate driving them there. Why are we doing this? You know, you, so you start to get these bigger questions and then what you can do with the extra money is free it up to redirect um, part of it to savings or debt payoff if you need to, but the rest of it towards things that make you happier. So, you know, there's the proverbial don't spend five bucks on a latte. Well, I actually spend $15 a day on lattes. I get three a day. I work remotely and I have usually two before 2 p.m., and then I have a decaf one later in the day, but I will sit in, in a coffee house for three hours and savor that latte. So my $5 over that three hours is like um, an extreme amount of um, joy. And so you can't just say, don't buy this, don't buy that. I think it's related to your your joy. And I, I think many, many people and what's missing in the dialogue with with um, so many financial gurus that we see on TV is um, the linkage between money and true happiness, which um, speaks to some broader thoughts that I have about what is the meaning of um, uh, being wealthy versus wealthy, W-E-L-L-T-H-Y, lots of issues around that. But um, I don't believe in deprivation. I believe in strategically smart spending that squeezes out as much joy as you can. Um, and the last thing I'll say on that front is another tool that works well is most of us work about 2,000 hours, sadly, <laughs> a, a year, at least in the U.S. Um, and, uh, you know, let's call it 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year, give or take. And 
Um, so you can take your annual after-tax income and divide it by 2000 and now you've got your hourly wage and maybe it's $10 an hour, $15 or $20 an hour, but you see something that costs a hundred bucks and now you can do the math and say, is it worth, you know, five, six, seven hours of my time, depending upon your imputed hourly wage? And the answer may be yes. You know, I mean, I am renovating a condo right now and I just bought this um, ridiculously expensive um, hanging pendant. Um, because it brings me exquisite joy to look at. But I am also talking to you wearing yoga pants that I bought five years ago um, that are like starting to shred because I just don't care what my yoga pants look like. It's funny to hear you talk about this because, um, you know, I think about it from two different angles. One, I think about it from joy, but I also think about it from the role that environment plays in behavior. So I'll, I'll give you two examples. You know, one, I spend, I think, 700 bucks every year on a season pass for skiing. And I know for a fact that this leads to, you know, meetings with friends and I'm an avid snowboarder. So that's well worth the 750 bucks. Like I think, and not only that, <clears throat> I go skiing five times, it pays for itself. Yeah. But there's one other thing that I, I noticed, um, and this was particularly around clothes. For the longest time, I was like, who gives a shit what you're dressed like? And one of my friends turned me on to proper cloth, which is these these really ridiculously expensive dress shirts that are custom made. And I noticed immediately two, two things started to happen. One, I started to get a lot more compliments on my clothes. Two, I started carrying myself differently. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, you know what? I'm replacing everything in my wardrobe. I narrowed it down to four or five shirts. Luckily, I got a bunch for my birthday. But I was mm-hmm. like, wow, I'd rather have five of these than, you know, 20 that I don't like at all, even though they're expensive. Because um, I, I saw it as a, as a sort of, okay, I was like, you know what? This is an investment as far as I see it in terms of how I feel about myself. And, you know, I wear these on every stage um, that I speak on. So there's that aspect of it. So I, I wonder, you know, how you, um, so you said, you know, deprivation is not what we're after here. How you balance joy-based spending with paying off debt and then getting yourself into a situation? Because I think that, you know, when I think about flexibility, what I think about in terms of flexibility is how long can I go? if I don't make any more money based on what I currently have, not how much is coming in every month. Um, I think I just, I look at it in terms of, okay, how much time does this give me? That's how I measure it. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy to use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. Aweber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, so... um a couple things. I'm with you on the clothes front. Um, I, uh, when I am working remotely from a coffee house, I look like um, a college student because thank God, um, many Indian women have um, so much oil in their hair and on their face that we look way younger, longer, even though it gives us acne when we're growing up. Um, and so I literally look like a college student as I'm bopping around. But when I'm doing work things, I have five amazing outfits for the summer and spring summer. And I have five amazing outfits for fall winter and their investment pieces. And the idea um, came to me. Um, I, I had spent my junior year at Oxford and I came over like the classic American had these two huge Samsonite suit, suitcases just packed with all my shitty clothes. And my flatmates had like these tiny little pieces of luggage and inside were the most exquisite sweaters of this beautiful material and cut. And they had so few pieces, but they looked unbelievable all the time because they bought high quality stuff that lasted forever and, you know, looked fresh and new forever. And that was my first exposure to um, seeing people live something that my grandfather always said, which was by few, but by the best that you can comfortably afford at that time. And I think that leads into this, this um, broader issue, not in, in your case, but just across the U.S. in particular, uh, we don't buy few and buy the best. We tend to buy a ton and then throw it away when we get tired of it. Um, and so I think shifting your mindset that way allows you to have some pretty luxurious things. But like you, it, it, it's five amazing shirts, um, not 15 crappy ones. And um, in terms of um, the way you you were talking about money, I'd call that um, your burn rate. And when you um, work for yourself, you're a lot like a startup company. And startup companies think about burn rates, like how how much time do they have um, to keep pushing themselves towards you know uh, launch or um, the beta version of their pro product or service with the cash that they have on hand, either um, uh, 
self-funded or from outside folks. And it's the same thing for you. You're like a mini um, entrepreneurial company and, and that's your burn rate. So that's a completely rational way of, of thinking about it. Um, and I think it's uh, what, what's happened is we've shifted, you know, in our parent generation, nobody had a side gig and like, it was really rare to work for yourself. And so, you know, we can't have a one size fits all way of thinking about quote incomes because so many of us have um, multiple streams of income or different ways of working um, than, than prior generations. And then to get to your last point about credit card debt, that makes it so much harder to deal with paying off credit card debt because you don't have a paycheck coming right. in twice a month that you can say, I'm going to siphon off X. And so the my rule of thumb is basically if you have less than $5,000 of credit card debt, add an extra $50 every month to the minimum monthly payment. However you have, like whatever you have to do um, to get that money, um, like hop on task rabbit and see what service of yours, like you could teach snowboarding lessons, um, like something that would be fun and that you could get an extra 50 bucks a month to add. If you have between five and $10,000 of, of credit card debt, add an extra $50 to your minimum monthly payment. And if you have um, over $10,000, add an extra $150. And uh, um, if you do that, you will, um, and you have a typical mid-teens interest rate on your credit card debt, you will compress the number of years it takes to pay off that debt dramatically. Using that formula, you can, depending on the interest rate, you can get all that debt paid off in three to five years. And one of the other benefits is while you're, you know, on TaskRabbit or there's another great site um, for women, hire my mom. Um, a lot of these sites where you can use your natural skills and gifts to do something on the weekends. Um, if you've got a day job or anytime, if you, if you're working for yourself, to augment your your income and the good thing is while you're augmenting your income you're busy so you can't spend more and so that's how i encourage people to um, get themselves to start the wheels moving getting out of credit card debt okay so that's one i thought so that, that but, you know, so let, let's say that you have, you know, for example, you and I both speak. So, you know, you get large cash infusions when you speak, sometimes upwards of eight or nine thousand dollars. And if you have an opportunity to make just huge dents in the debt, do you suggest that or how would you balance that with um, also having to live? Like, how would you deal with those two things? Because that literally this is the reason I'm asking this is literally this is the plan that I'm formulating in my head yeah. right now. Cause I know I have, you know, three to four or even five paid speaking engagements that are coming up in the next month or two. And I'm like, okay, how do I, how, could I, could I literally wipe out the, the debt on one credit card entirely and still manage my living expenses? That's what I'm thinking. Cause I want, I want to be out of this situation. Not only that, I need those lines of credit for emergencies. Yeah. So what I would say is, and this is why I know people hate tracking their money, but it's so powerful because like I can tell you exactly how much I need for my essentials. And I think it depends for everyone how much discomfort they have with living with that debt. If you have extreme discomfort with living with that debt, just like ripping a bandaid off, the single best way to do it is identify what it costs you per month to just have the bare basics mm -hmm. and um, 
you decide based on the number of speaking engagements that you have right now with Clarity, um, how much you would take out of each of those in order. And then you decide, do you want three months of safety? Do you want six months of safety? And everything else goes to paying off that credit card debt. And really, really, really importantly, when you when you reach out to the credit card company you, um, and you pay that, you want to make sure that, that that money is all applied to the principal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, the extreme method of doing it would be um, to, to cut back to bare bones and put everything else to um, debt right. pay down. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about that in terms of, okay, how I, I, I create a runway that yeah, that's what I was thinking of myself is, okay, create a runway for however long I need and then, you know, allocate everything else towards getting rid of it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and some people can three months is, you know, they're like, I am confident that if I can just keep things going for three months, I'm going to get more work. Mm-hmm. Uh, me, I'm like a nervous Nelly. So I'd be like, I need six, six months of a runway. So it's very personal. But yeah, that's, that's the conceptually the strategy. Okay, interesting. So I think, you know, what's, what's interesting is that we're talking about a lot of tactical sort of behavioral changes. But to me, I think part of, you know, what's funny is when I got here, um, you know, after living at my parents' house for a long time, you know, I finally had, you know, money coming in from speaking. And, you know, I was really diligent about saving because my my speaking agent told me, he said, put aside 50% of everything you earn, because if it slows down, you want to make sure you're not screwed. And it slowed down to the point where I got nothing for a year. And that's mm-hmm. how I was able to sustain myself. But I had to actually, but I ended up burning through a lot of what I had saved because of that. And so suddenly a lot of the old patterns and behaviors, I'm like, oh my God, I'm back in this situation where I'm trying to scramble with credit cards. How the hell did this happen? So part of me wonders, you know, we're talking about tactical changes, you and I right now. And then I I wonder, you know, how do you unwind this sort of scarcity that ultimately leads to the change in behavior? Because I think that if you don't change the story, you can change the behavior, but you're putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound, it seems like. Oh my God, I want to hug you through like, through, through the uh, intra uh, <laughs> webs of um, of the internet for asking that question because I I have to tell you I am bored stiff of tips like if I have to give one more set of tips I feel like when I give tips I'm addressing the symptoms and not the root problems and yeah. I have decided from this point forward in my career I want to focus on the root problems. And there are three big questions that I am really focused on right now that I think we all need to ask ourselves because it's the answers to these questions that are leading us to places that are causing us to be like rats on a hamster wheel in so many different ways, not just monetarily. So um, the first one is what if everything we've been taught about money and making it, and I put that in air quotes, um, cause I mean it both literally and figuratively is just all wrong. Um, the second question is what if success as defined by modern society is really nothing more than a recipe for disconnection from self and others, community, life overall. 
And the third is what if instead of always looking for more, which is sort of part of the American dream, you can fill in the blank, whether it's more money, more fame, more status, um, more house, more car, we focused on optimizing our own definition of enough. And I think, A, that could have such a huge impact on the planet just from a variety of different, you know, global climate change issues if we weren't consuming as much. But more importantly, I think it would have a huge impact on our happiness if we all thought about those three questions and talked about them more. Because I think um, it is rote answers to those to the reverse of those questions that have led so many of us to spend in a way that um, doesn't make us happy. And again, because I I have spent half my career um, working on what's called the institutional side of the finance business, but the the second half working with individuals um, and I I do my paid work um, and then pro bono work. And, in my paid work, I have worked with extremely wealthy individuals. And what I have found is wealth, it's so true. It does not make you happier. I can't tell you how many miserable, wealthy people um, I have encountered. And um, and it's because of your soul isn't nourished. It does not matter how much money you have. Like you are still aching. And I feel like collectively we are aching because of things that we as a society are being subtly propelled towards are not the things that bring us great joy, like family and friendship and giving back and white space in our heads to think and be creative. Um, Those aren't things that we, uh, like we give lip service to, we talk about them, but we don't really um, value them. We we value money, success, power, (laughs) money, success, power, fame, um, Mm -hmm. Those are the things that we are subtly or not so subtly often idolizing. Yeah. It's, it's so funny you say that. I, I, you may have, have uh, seen it. David Brooks, uh, the, the New York Times columnist, recently wrote a book called The Second Mountain, which is all about this. And he talks yes. extensively about that. He had a lengthy chat with Oprah on it. For any of you guys listening who haven't heard it, I'd recommend you go listen to it. But more importantly, I recommend everybody read that book uh, because it really was an eye-opening look into this idea of, okay, these are all these things that you think will make you happy. And I remember we had another psychologist here. She said, look, you get this thing you want that you say you've always wanted. And what ends up happening is because of hedonic adaptation, it just becomes your new normal, you know, like suddenly your whole reference group changes. And I've seen this even in my own life where I thought, oh, you know what, I'm going to get a book deal. It's going to be this like amazing thing. And I think by the time the second book came out, it was, you know, no more, it was no longer about the joy of getting to write a book. It was like, why the hell isn't this selling more copies? Why are my friends selling more books? Uh, You know, and it was such a, a, a sort of moment of what the hell? Um, that it was like a, a gut check moment to make me realize that, wow, there is a grain of truth. As I heard Josh Radner, uh, the guy who was on How I Met Your Mother, uh, yeah. he was doing an interview with this guy, Sam Jones, on off camera. And he said, a successful career in the arts is rigged for dissatisfaction. So you have to mm-hmm. find something else. And I thought about that. He said, if it wasn't, then why would you have movie stars and celebrities in rehab? and dying and, you know, committing suicide. He said, you know, there's, but yet, you know, I had another friend who said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I would rather be miserable and, and rich than, you know, 
poor and happy. (laughs) Uh, So it's a funny, funny thing. And I I wonder, you know, how we, we resolve those two paradoxes. Well, I'm just telling you, having had, I've worked for two different billionaires um, over the course of my career. And it's interesting when you work for billionaires, because you are clearly the help, (laughs) like you are not, you are there. Um, I was, you know, partner level or senior level um, person within the organization. Um, But by virtue of being in that orbit, I had seen, you know, the private plane, five huge, huge, you know, 25,000 square foot homes in multiple countries kind of life. And I'm telling you, being miserable and, and being rich and miserable uh, really does not trump being poor and happy. It really, really, really does not. And I wouldn't be able to say that in my bones with such certainty, but for having seen um, the myriad of issues that, that, that come along with extreme wealth, um, never knowing whether people want to be with you because they like you or they want your money, um, being afraid to, you know, open your mail or, um, you know, answer the phone because of, well, and these folks don't do either for themselves. They have other people do that for them, but because there's a, you know, they're being barraged daily with requests for money, um, philanthropic and otherwise. Um, I, I've had some of the people I work for have to have safety um, and security guards around their kids for kidnapping um, to uh, because they're worried about their kids being kidnapped for ransom. Now, that's yeah. obviously the extreme, extreme end of wealth, but I just... I have, by nature of my career, seen that. And that's why I think this question of optimizing for enough. Um, for some people, enough may be 10 of those amazing shirts you have and the $70,000 Mercedes and a beautiful condo in Miami Beach that they live out of. And those are those things bring them exquisite joy and 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 then they love to be with friends, and that's that's their version of enough. Someone else's version may be living in a tiny home. So it's not to judge like how much you have. Um, it, it's it's focusing on um, it. It's it's like this this shift in your mindset and. Um, David Brooks describes it beautifully. He's had several columns about this topic. John Bogle wrote a book. He's uh, he's passed now. He was the founder of Vanguard, and yeah, um, the book, book is called it, it's called <laughs> Enough, and yeah. it's just so beautiful. And I think that's the question we want to ask ourselves: like, what is what is enough? Not from the standpoint of deprivation, but from the standpoint of happiness. Mm-hmm. optimizing enough for happiness. I think that's that's the question du jour of the globe um, that I would put out there. Amazing. Well, I, I think that, that actually really kind of makes a perfect place to bring us full circle to where we started. So I wonder how your own perception of enough changed after your confrontation with your own mortality. So, um, it's, it's interesting. Um, probably the biggest way in which it changed is for years and years, I had struggled with 
um, depression and anxiety. And I thought it was just, you know, garden level depression and anxiety. I work in finance, like pretty much everybody seems to be depressed and or anxious. And um, I was always too busy to seek proper help and care. And um, when I did, it would be for my general physician. I'd be like, I'm depressed. I'm not like I had these mood swings. And um, and you know, my general physician would per, uh, prescribe more Prozac for me. So you know, I've been on Prozac for ages. And um, after getting divorced and and moving, I moved to Portland, Oregon, um, with my books and my Mini Cooper. And I didn't even bring a fork with me. I started completely fresh. And um, what what happened were two things. I'll come back to my health in a moment. The first thing that happened um, was um, after the near-death experience, I made some bold changes. Um, A a huge one was moving to a city where I didn't know anyone. And I bought a condo um, for cash because that's just how I think. So it wasn't huge. (laughs) Um, And um, I had the experience of starting as an adult with a blank slate from the standpoint of both possessions and my story. And in terms of possessions, my place looks like a jewel box. When my my parents come here, my dad's like, this is better than a six star hotel. Like it is, it is beautiful. Every piece in my place is gorgeous, but it's, it's enough. I have just enough. I have no excess. There is no clutter. And that was um, a luxury because I, I literally didn't come with a fork, you know? So every single thing I brought in, I was very deliberate about. So that was one thing that um, came about circuitously from the near-death experience. The other one, though, was uh, I finally realized that your health is something you cannot take for granted. And all my life, I felt like I was, you know, running 100 miles an hour, hitting a brick wall and then collapsing and then picking up and repeating. But, you know, I, I just thought that was normal because especially when I was on the corporate side of finance, that's just how people behave. And so I, because I was, um, I'd had a near-death experience because I was divorced, because I was in a new town. Um, because it's Portland, um, which is a very funky town, um, my general physician was like, I don't know you. I'm not going to give you um, de- antidepressants until you start seeing a psychiatrist. And so I started seeing one regularly. And um, lo and behold, it turns out I'm not just depressed or anxious. I'm actually bipolar. Um, and the reason it was never diagnosed is that when I'm in hypomania, most people in hypomania, when they have bipolar do um, visibly self-destructive things, spend money wantonly, um, uh, engage in risky sexual behavior, um, really extreme things to the outside world. When I was in hypomania, I would, um, go into extreme workaholism and I'd pull all nighters and I'd sleep three or four hours a night. And in finance, that's just called being a good employee. And so it was never, the behavior was never diagnosed and then it'd completely crash. And so the other circuitous thing that came out, um, was, um, 
that I actually got proper mental health care. And now I'm a huge advocate around mental health. And I try and talk about my bipolar as much as I possibly can, because I feel like there is so much stigma around mental health. And there's so many things wrong with the mental health system. And um, if I could put a neon light on my head flashing, I'm bipolar, um, I would because I really want to help normalize the conversation. So um, I would say the those are the two biggest things. Obviously, the mental health one is is. I would argue the most important, but I want to circle back to the the things one of bringing things into my life. The, the thing that I also realize it's not just about things. When you when you start fresh, you also have a chance to um, tell your story again, and you can drag all the crap from your junior high school days that are still tormenting you, um, which in my case they very much were, um, into the present, or you can just choose to let that past go and start with where you are right now. Um, and that was really fascinating. Every time I opened my mouth to someone new and they wanted to know who I am, where I'm from, I had a choice of what story to tell. And I could choose to tell a woe is me victim story, or I could choose to tell um, a moving forward story. And so those two ends, um, the mental health diagnosis and just the realization of what it's like as an adult to be able to start with a blank slate and be really conscious about what possessions or what thoughts or what stories you want to let back in your life. Um, that's what came out of it, albeit in a very circuitous manner. Amazing. Well, I think that makes a really fitting place to wrap up our conversation. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Um, genuine vulnerability. Um, I know in the day and era of Brene Brown, that sounds like a hashtag, but true vulnerability is what I think connects us to each other. Um, and I find the most, um, unmistakably Creative, delightful, brilliant, and inspiring people are the ones that just are themselves. Just put it all out there. And um, that's what makes somebody truly shine in, in the way you are describing. Awesome. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. This has been really, really um, eye-opening for me and one of those conversations that I will probably go back to a hundred times. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, and uh, everything that you're up to? So two places. Um, I uh, maintain a personal website called Money Zen, M-O-N-E-Y, and then Zen, like Zen Buddhism, moneyzen.com. Um, and, uh, it has, uh, various iterations depending upon how much time I have to tend to it, but it's a place where I like to share, um, as much information about personal finance as I possibly can. And, 
Um, I don't do a ton of teaching or speaking, but when I am, that's where the information is. And then my big passion project these days is, um, like you, a, a podcast um, that you can find on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play. And it's it's called The True Wealth Podcast, where wealth is spelled W-E-L-L-T-H. Um, so those are the two places, moneyzen.com and uh, The True Wealth Podcast are the two best places to find me. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.